Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What are the benefits of getting married? Now, that's a question that we could probably spend years delving into, so maybe I'll refine it just a little bit. What are the financial benefits of getting married? Well, if you ask the people who don't get married but decide to be with another person on a long-term basis and cohabit, they would likely say, there are none. We are already saving the way we would if we were married. You know, because of bill consolidation, right? There's only one rent payment. You only have to subscribe to the digital services one time. You might share a car. And you only need one set of cutlery or furniture. There are savings to be had in cohabiting. However, as Lee Habib writes in Newsweek commenting on a Wall Street Journal article that came out earlier this month, a typical couple, Melissa and Alex, in their 30s, have been together for five years and cohabiting for four years. And they're frustrated. Or maybe befuddled is a better term, because literally she says, I don't understand how married couples are accumulating wealth in a way we're not. We're already saving a lot of money and splitting the cost on most things. But according to the journal, as of 2019, the median net worth for cohabiting couples 25 to 34 years old, $17,000. The median net worth for married couples, same age, $68,000. Four times as high. And of course, singles go much farther in the other direction, $7,000. And as Habib says, that's not a financial discrepancy between the married and unmarried peers. It's a financial chasm. And yet when you look at the data put out by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, a lot of people are sort of baffled by it. How can it be that married couples are so far ahead of everybody else when it comes to wealth? But it's not really that baffling except maybe to people who don't get married. When you make a commitment to somebody else in sickness and in health, in good times and bad, richer and poorer till death do us part, what you actually get out of that is, Better times, better health, more money, till death do us part. At least that's what the numbers indicate. But why? Because when you're committed to another person for the rest of your natural lives, you're committed to working together. You're committed to making decisions together, mixing up your finances, and having a kind of veto power over each other that simply cohabiting couples just don't have. When I was single, if I wanted to go out to eat and blow a bunch of money on a night of fun, I did. When I had a girlfriend, if I wanted to go out and have a bunch of fun and blow a bunch of money, I did. And even when my not-yet-wife and I were living together, basically if I wanted to go out and blow a bunch of money, I could. Although it's a little harder when somebody else is living with you because you're supposed to invite them, right? But basically the decision-making was the same. Ah, uh, but when we got married. Now all of a sudden I'm not blowing my money, I'm blowing our money. And when I'm making a purchase on a credit card, I'm making it on our card. And all of a sudden, when you're thinking about finances together, you think about them differently. You criticize each other, you nag each other, or you gently remind each other that that's not really in line with our goals, you know. Especially when the big goal is what? Having kids. What do you need to do in order to have kids? Well, you don't have to buy a house, but it's a very normal thing. So that progression of get a job, get married, get a house, have children... Well, those are things that very much shape the way you use your finances. And as we know, especially in a rising value market like ours today, buying a house is a wonderful way to expand wealth. 
Whereas not buying a house, which by the way, cohabiting couples much more rarely do, is not a good way to expand wealth. And here's what's funny. You say, well, then there's kids. Yep, and kids are expensive. They absolutely are. And typically cohabiting couples aren't interested in making kids, at least not as often. And you would think that would be where married couples fall behind. But no, four to one. Remember that ratio, four to one. Massive benefits just from the act of being married. Enough to not only provide for yourselves financially, but then to spin off enough extra to actually raise kids on, typically. And so on a practical level, the culturally accepted notion that simply cohabiting is going to accomplish a lot of your financial goals the way marriage does not separately is just false. And the longer we kind of keep that mindset in place, the farther behind their married peers, cohabiting couples will fall. But I think there's another side to it as well. Another person in the house is another brain in the house. You know, I make fewer dumb choices because my wife helps me not make as many dumb choices and vice versa. We get each other's input. We ask for opinions and advice. And the second brain has a wonderful way of keeping you from doing as many dumb things as you would do on your own. You say, well, cohabiting couples can do that too. Maybe, but when you're not sharing finances, investments, bank accounts, and the rest, you're just not as likely to ask. Because why would you? By the way, according to data from the Pew Research Center and the American Enterprise Institute, even for millennials, yeah, millennials, who follow the basic code of get a high school diploma, get a job, and then get married before having kids, 82% of those who followed that progression were in the middle or high income brackets by the time they get into their 30s, and 97% of those, even non-college educated millennials who follow that pattern, don't live in poverty. Meaning that following that pattern is actually more valuable than going to college. And if you can do both, well, so much the better. But we live in a culture where people are getting married less frequently and later and cohabiting more frequently and for a longer period of time, things that only harm them financially. But I think there's another factor at work here. People who are cautious about marriage tend to have a very skeptical view of it. You know, you tend to think that, oh, if somebody's promised to me forever, then I can take advantage of that or take advantage of them or do what I want and they can't leave which I suppose in some sense is true, but marriage doesn't lead you to take advantage of each other. It leads you to sacrifice for each other because that's what the promise was. You made a vow. It reminds you you're supposed to do things to serve each other and the family rather than yourself. And so that's what you do because you made a promise and precisely because every little friction point or disappointment isn't a reason to reconsider whether you want to be with this person at all. And the habit of restraining desires, making sacrifices, not squandering, becoming more frugal is unique to marriage in a way that just doesn't happen when you're boyfriend and girlfriend. So the headline of Habib's piece, the best way to close the wealth gap in America, try marriage. Although I would say, don't just try it, but do it. It really does work. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.